Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I wanted to tell you about a new podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. It's going to be on the Ringer Reality Podcast. What's it called, Johnny Bananas? Death, Taxes, and Bananas. We're going to be breaking down this season of the challenge, Hall of Fame episodes, and I'm going to be taking you behind the curtain of America's fifth major sport. Are we getting special guests? We're going to have special guests. We're going to have special effects. The show is just going to be special. <laughs> I can't wait. Check it out. Death, Taxes, and Bananas on the Ringer Podcast Network. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, crestfallen because his Pangborn What If was rejected by Disney. It's Andy Greenwald! Not rejected. It was swatted away at the rim like Pangborn does when he defends these courts. Do New you York think City Pangborn, streets. where was he on the Knicks big board for this past NBA draft? Oh, like, he was definitely like, in the mix. Like above Moses Moody for sure. A million percent. If things had broken a certain way. <laughs> He's still an undrafted free agent. Greenwald, it's Thursday. What a delightful time uh, to be speaking with you about popular culture, but specifically television, which is what mm -hmm. people rely on us for. That's where the watchers on the wall. Uh, today on the podcast, uh, not only am I chatting with my best friend, Andy, but I am also chatting with Andrew Hay and uh, Jack O'Connell. Jack O'Connell is the star of The North Water. Andrew Hay wrote and directed the episodes of The North Water. It's uh, adapted from an Ian McGuire novel. I will say I finished it. The last episode has is up now and available. It's a five-episode um, miniseries. This is one of my favorite things I've seen this year. The end of the season is extraordinary. I can't wait to talk with some people about it once they get a chance to see it. I feel like this one's a little bit slow on the uptake, but I will say the way this is happening kind of reminds me of zero, 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 where people are like, how do I watch it? Or like, I'm going to get around to it. When people see, it, I think that this is going to have a second life. Absolutely mind blowing Colin Farrell performance. That is, I would not say necessarily on the same level of Daniel day Lewis and there will be blood, but is definitely singing from the same hymn book. But O'Connell is amazing in this. Like, this is my favorite Jack O'Connell so far. It's, if you don't know, a story about a 19th century whaling expedition that goes horribly wrong in the Arctic. And you, they, they shot it north of Norway. Like, they went, they went there. And uh, it's cold and hell is hot, man. I'll tell you that. And so, incredible show. I hope people check it out. Uh, and even if you haven't checked it out, my conversation with Andrew and Jack was really cool just to hear about the making of it and uh, what went into it. So that that out of the way we'll get to that in the second half of the show I, andy how are you i, I want to say i'm i'm two episodes in i'm gonna watch the show i like this show i can't wait to talk to you about it i have to say maybe this is just the contrarian in me but what about all those 19th century whaling expeditions that went well well that's how the thing how come we I, don't hear about I suggested, them i suggested to andrew that there's a lot of ip out there like yes you could you could do a feel good Northwater next just a, a whaling expedition that you know, maybe they even saved the whales. Maybe they're like, you know, what are what are we doing out here? <laughs> because the thing about 19th century is that those guys were conservationists. You know, yes. they really they really thought long and hard about, and they were very mindful of their behavior. It's funny. It's sometimes I, you know, I like many. I look at the state of the world and I despair. Mm -hmm. But then I do have to remember that for all of human recorded and unrecorded People history until like 19 yeah yeah until like 1950 <laughs> yeah the sole purpose of humanity was to see something that scared them and then club it over the head that yes. was it <laughs> yes. and sometimes you were the thing that got clubbed over the head so every time i'm like oh, my emotional maturity isn't developed enough i'm like what a what a what a concept what a luxury i, know. I, know. I don't have to stab seals to make money you know what i mean so Maybe maybe we all ought to give ourselves a break. Well, Andy, but before we talk about these new shows, can we talk a little bit about a new show that is going to be a, now a multi-season show, which is White Lotus? It was announced that White Lotus is going to get a second season, another installment from HBO. And it sounds like what will happen is it will be a different set of characters in a different location. The same, the White Lotus property, like it would be another White Lotus property. But um, yeah, I, I thought that was very interesting. Obviously, Mike White, uh, it's, it's pretty well known now essentially like pulled this one out of his back pocket 
when HBO called him up and said, do you have anything COVID friendly that we could make now? And, you know, he's obviously had some ups and downs, incredible writer and incredible filmmaker and incredible showrunner, but has had some ups and downs with TV and now has an unlikely, I don't know, juggernaut, but an un, a, a successful show that he kind of seems to have grabbed out of thin air. Yeah, some people work best this way. Some people work best quickly when they can't get in their own way and without um, you know, the various roadblocks that the business sets up to slow any momentum you might ever possibly feel even for a second. Definitely not editorializing on behalf of myself here. And, you know, it's also probably why to a degree the show has resonated beyond the setting and beyond the cast and characters. We haven't really talked about this and we've talked about the show, but you know, the characters are pretty fungible mouthpieces for hot button issues of the day. Sometimes I think it's almost to the the show's detriment. Like, and we we were we were dinging a little bit for Steve Zahn's speech about white people giving up privilege. But a different scenario almost makes it worse. It makes you appreciate what Mike White's done here because he wrote this so quickly and it's in front of us so quickly. He is able to kind of play in the. I don't want to say cesspool, but maybe mm-hmm. I will, of contemporary sociological discourse and not have it feel super forced and super dated all the time. You know, in terms of like bespoke prestige turnaround, this is about as fast as it can get. And so I think that that's a nimble and useful thing for him and the way he likes to write and the way he likes to engage with his characters and have them engage with the world. Mostly, I want to say, this is a no-brainer, but no-brainer's get missed all the time when they Mm -hmm. become too much brainers. Like, this is a great idea. This is a great win for everybody involved, particularly a great win for Mike White, as you said, not only because his, you know, he he seemed more aligned. His career seemed, and this is not a bad place to be, but it definitely seemed to be trending towards the critically and fanatically and cultally adored and not so much the consistently successful in mm-hmm. the larger metrics. But he's done the thing that I think every single person who's ever downloaded a copy of Final Draft has dreamed of, which is he's somehow manufactured a successful show that demands, nay, requires him to be on location in exotic, expensive vacation destinations every year. I mean, respect. And I say so this as someone who grew to love Albuquerque, New Mexico. But yeah. when you write, put pen to paper, like, of course, part of you is like, I'm going to write myself to Maui this summer or this winter, more like. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. And oh my God, I'm so impressed by that. It's fantastic. Where, where do you take White Lotus season two? What locale? Um, what's funny is I, 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 it, it's not so much that tax breaks will determine it, but COVID will determine it again. So it's, mm-hmm. again, a smart choice for them to do this. Um. I think the other thing that we read in the LA, we learned from the LA Times story about the show the other week was that the Four Seasons in Maui was just, for whatever reason, cool with this. And the, even the reporter was kind of like, when we followed up to ask if the Four Seasons was cool with all the stuff that goes on in the show, they did right. kind, of, kind of a muted response. <laughs> so it would need to be a resort that was like re- either closed because of COVID and can let them run wild or able to continue their business and bring people in and do it safely. So... I don't have an answer. It, the potential, you know, there's limitless potential around the world, but I do think that those other factors will factor into the decision. Um, I have an answer. Yeah. I'm always thinking about vertical integration. You know me. You oh. know that that's where my mind always goes. It's, it's that, your passion. How can, we get, how can we get synergy? What can we build on here? So why not a white lotus about the last group of visitors to Westworld? Wow. <laughs> well, the shows are very similar, honestly. I, I I mean that sincerely. This is just my preferred version of Westworld, of like an apocalyptic representation of what it means to be human. Like this is more sure. my speed. How do you see that? Playing I just think out? it would be funny to imagine them arriving by train and and just getting off in like these very weirdly nice hotel managers come up to them right before there is an absolute like <laughs> slaughter <laughs> slaughter from from robots yeah uh, i think, I think that, I, look i think that there's lots of of side door action there look why not why not go to um king's landing you know what i mean like why not white lotus king's landing white lotus at least like dubrovnik right like, or, or like white white like lotus, lotus like northern new jersey get a little sopranos action going wow i mean if casey wasn't coming on the show before now he's going to come on just to <laughs> tell right. you that those are ridiculous ideas um i think the other thing that i'm curious about 
And there's probably no way of knowing because the ratings are the ratings and the value is the value. It's very opaque from our perspective. But it strikes me that that HBO struck a bullseye with the show among the audience that they that's most important for them to cultivate, which is a certain kind of cultural literati slash, you know, Twitter user. It, it's it's the audience that they've they made their bones on. And mm-hmm. I don't know if it is a I don't know how broad an audience it is. I'd be curious. They probably have the numbers. But this is a bullseye that is important to them, not only to keep the kind of viewers that have watched the network for years, but also to keep their identity as that pl- home for those viewers and as a place to go on Sunday nights. It's just really struck gold. And I and I, I don't know if that's the same audience that they've been scraping and touching and moving past sure. with things like The Undoing or Big Little Lies or, um, or even Mayor of Easttown, which I think has... You know, I don't know if this is anecdotally, but seems to have grown even more successful as it's just been living on HBO Max. Yeah, and I think that I think it'll be interesting to see coming out of the Emmys if that if that show does very well at the Emmys, whether or not it gets in another life of of Chris, people checking it out. It's going to do very well at the Emmys. Um, let's talk about Reservation Dogs first. Okay, so this is a a new show that I would describe as first of all, I would describe as. Wonderful. Um, I I will always have time for shows that arrive kind of fully cooked, even though I think, you know, TV is about patience and allowing shows to sort of figure out what they are as even as they're airing. But even um, even so, like I would say that this show knows what it is more than most. And it's um, from Taika Waititi and Sterling Harjo. It's about four indigenous teens living in Oklahoma and they're basically a Bruce Springsteen song. They're trying to get the fuck out. You know, they are dealing with some some grief. They're dealing with some <laughs> economic hardships. And they're kind of getting by, hustling, uh, doing some petty robbery, doing some some cons, just also just selling some meat pies outside of a health clinic. And it shows up and like it, almost within the, the fifth frame or the first song you hear when they start playing the Stooges, you, at least I, felt, like I was in like a very comfortable and safe place where I was like, this is a warm bath of like stuff that I like. I like these kids. I like the sense of humor of the show. I like the drama of the show. I like the way it looks. I like the music that they're playing. I like the way it sounds. I love the performances. I've never been to this place, but I want to spend a ton of time there. And that's just what TV, good TV does, right? Yeah, I, I agree with you on everything you said. I I kind of want to just begin by giving the kudos to FX's half-hour development team and process, Mm -hmm. it really stands out. And I don't know the ins and outs of how they work versus how other networks work in this half hour space, but I really can't think of a comparison or any kind of competition where FX seems to just, not just, they put their money where their mouth is because everyone who takes a meeting for a half hour show, we used to call them comedies, now they're half hours. Um, says, we want your vision. We want it, We understand what's going to make this special is your point of view, your distinct idiosyncratic sense of humor, your world, what makes you comfortable. And we want, we want to help bring that to life. And then they start, you know, focus grouping and testing bigger stars just to add a little more shine to it and maybe bring in consultants or whatever. And it changes. And the process is, you can tell, you can feel the speed bumps even when eventually, you know, the, in the best cases, after five, 10 episodes, it smooths out. FX is on this run with Atlanta, with Dave. what we do in the shadows with Dave, a show I haven't really engaged with, but by all accounts is exactly what I'm describing. And now Reservation Dogs, where there aren't stars here. You know what I mean? There is very little attempt in any of those shows to be like, let's hold your hand until you feel comfortable here. Or let's no. give you, throw you a couple bones so that you recognize things. They're just like, this is cool. This is interesting. This is fun. And to your phrase, this is fully formed. And it's the best feeling that we can get from contemporary TV, right? Where I have never spent time on native lands in Oklahoma. I, that this is an entire pocket universe within our country that is real. It's in our, I mean, obviously this is heightened, this is comedy, et cetera, et cetera. But FX trusted Sterling Harjo and to, to bring this to life. And if you look, it, and it's not just the fact that the cast is all indigenous and, and it, at least to my mind, very few recognizable names. Um, if you look at the director's list, 
right? If you look at the music is amazing in the show and totally evocative and cool and interesting and surprising and you Shazam it and you're like, oh, are these all Oklahoma, Oklahoman artists, mostly indigenous artists other than the Stooges, as you mentioned? Yeah. Uh, yes, they are. And how thrilling and how wonderful it is to find a show that looks at all of that opportunity. It looks at all of those quote unquote unfamiliar to mainstream audiences, whatever that means anymore, po- possibility and sees it as an opportunity. It's really fun. Yeah, I I want to say also, like, I think you'll watch this if you haven't seen it already, but you t- check it out and you're like, this show, I wouldn't say it only could have happened in a post-Atlanta world, but I think Atlanta's success has a lot to do with shows like this because it does feel, it has like a degree of um, kind of, not meandering, but it's it's kind of, it's very much just like slice of life rather than there's not like a t- tremendous amount of urgency around any m- major plot point, at least in the first two episodes. But knowing a little bit about Sterling Harjo's uh, r- like background at the Sundance Institute and making independent features and just seeing his age and seeing people walking around in this show wearing Wu-Tang Clan shirts and yeah. him playing the Stooges, I have to imagine that he probably is like us, a child of 90s independent cinema. And the biggest influence that I detect in this show or the thing that I would say do you like this then you'll like that is do you like early Richard Linklater like Mm -hmm. do you like people hanging out and trying to make sense of the world around them and if you do please check this out and if you (laughs) I would check it out either way but you know one of the things that's been sort of not nagging at me but I have noticed over the last a couple of the shows that we've talked about this year, or several of the shows that we've talked about this year, is the dead body in the beginning, the mm-hmm. the the mystery that we're trying to solve. Even when you're like, does this show need to be a murder mystery, or does it? Like, I'm, I am referring to White Lotus, but there are others. And there, so far, there is nothing like that for Reservation Dogs. And I would say that the second episode, which is basically a, a day spent outside of a health clinic in Oklahoma, and where, we should say but the first two episodes are available now. I think it is an FX on Hulu exclusive. So you have to have Hulu to be able to watch it. Yes. I would just say that it's, it literally like everything happens, but nothing happens. Like it's just the way four teenagers spend a day and there's a little miracles and there's a lot of comedy and there's a little bit of like drama and a little bit of sadness, but that's features a really great, uh, uh, cameo, cameo. I don't know if he's going to be recurring or not, but Bobby Lee, who is a, is a really funny comedian and has an awesome podcast called Tiger Belly, plays a doctor working in the clinic. He's amazing. Who's fucking hilarious. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I, I really like this show. I love the Richard Linklater call out. I think that's exactly right. It's a vibe and you're either here for it or you're not and you can settle into it and it's so pleasurable to know it's out there. I, I think the other bona fides that I would shout out about Sterling Harjo, who we, you know, I'd never encountered his work before at all. It's not just the indie filmmaker stuff, which is prevalent. It's also the comedy stuff because he's in a mm-hmm. comedy group called the 1491s Native American Sketch Comedy Group. Um, one of the other members of the group uh, is a guy named uh, Dallas Goldtooth, who plays uh, a very, very important character on the show, which is the sort is of he the, like... Is he the warrior? He's the warrior spirit that keeps coming <laughs> yeah. to our main character, Bear, he when he gets knocked unbelievable. out. unbelievable. It is just like, these guys know what's funny too. And you can see it not just in the sort of the, the relaxed way that jokes are set up and deployed, but also in the casting on the margins, like you said, because it's not it, Bobby Lee shows up and Briar Patch alum Kirk Fox. Oh, who he's is great. No, be, no better dirtbag. Uh, I, I was going to say as an actor, but maybe in life, um, shows up in the first episode. And most of all, the thing that I really want to shout out that, that makes me feel just really good about the show and excited about the show is um, the great actor Zon McLaren, who. <clears throat> People know, I think, from his brilliant turns in Fargo, season two, uh, and people shout out his episode of Westworld, I think, as one of the best individual episodes of the series. And he's an incredibly evocative, dramatic actor. That's all we've ever seen him do. So far, he's in both of these episodes. I don't know if he's going to be recurring, hopefully recurring beyond that. He's the town cop, and he's hilarious. And he's such a great energy, you know? Yeah. And I, maybe I'm reading too much into it. It's very possible. But the energy that I feel from his performance is just like, finally, someone's going to let me do this. You know, finally, I can just be a different kind of guy and have a different kind of intensity and have fun doing it. And, and from what I understand, the show was shot on location in Oklahoma. And, you know, that's, you shouldn't take that stuff for granted. Like, there's a reason 
why most networks and services, and I say this taking no checks from FX or Disney whatsoever, but even the most creatively empowered business affairs departments would at least run the PowerPoint of how much money you could save if you shot the show in New in Mexico Louisiana. or, or yeah. Georgia or Louisiana. Yeah. And they didn't. And it's awesome. It's cool. I just, lo- I, I love it because it, it just, it just bubbled up and I can't wait to watch more. And these kids are really good. The lead, the lead guy uh, who plays Bear, Deferro Wunatai is like, oh. He's he, really good. This kid is maybe going to be an incandescent shining star because he's just incredibly charismatic and good looking and seems to be able to just hang. Who knows? It's fun. Yeah, to be yeah, on, to be in early on all of it. A real breath of fresh air. I'm so glad. I'm so glad it's on, and, and I look forward to talking about it more. Do you want to do? Let's talk about what if. Um, yeah, this is the show that me. really scratches all your pet peeves. So you texted me, and you were like, "This, this is like every. It ticks every box of things you hate about popular culture." Which I, <laughs> I, I, I take in stride, but also, I would say probably not. Like I'm, I'm totally fine to like sit through an, anything animated like if i have to uh, <laughs> like, like 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 the miyazaki movie you promised to watch <laughs> that's right Ooh. um you go first because i think you probably have a little okay. bit more of a background in what if as a comic series the, like with everything marvel when we talk about this there's there's a it's a two-track conversation the first track is just you know there's very little else to do but tip your dumb dumb dugan war cap and be like you guys have this on lock. You figured this out. When I became a comic fan, when I was like 13 or 14 years old, yes, I, I thought Wolverine was cool and Cyclops, and I thought the X-Men were interesting, and the idea of joining something in the middle, that there was just, you know, at that point, 30 years plus of history that I didn't even know about waiting to be discovered and how everything was connected, that was all thrilling. But the thing that sealed the deal for me was when my I, probably my buddy Mazi, who gave, gave me my first issue of X-Factor, gave me an issue of, of What If, which was an intermittently published comic by Marvel that just let creators do exactly what the series does, which is just go bananas on topics really big. Like, I mean, I don't have the list of stories in front of me, but they were like, what if, I mean, the essentially version of it would be like, what if Thanos won? Mm-hmm. But then other really doofy versions, like what if the spider didn't bite Peter Parker, it bit a dog and there was spider dog. I mean, that wasn't sure. an issue, but they could have been. Right. The sheer elasticity of this massive creative thing that it held room within itself for high drama and also high comedy, seriousness and absurdity, everything that happened in a fictional world, but also all the things that maybe could have happened and those things were secretly cooler, that really, that did me in. That's when I became a huge fan. And so the Marvel current Marvel Entertainment team, knowing that this is in their back pocket, and also knowing that they were going to start doing multiversal storytelling, why not? And and more than why not, do it as a cartoon so you don't have to drag everyone back and you can get, you know, all these actors are coming through Georgia anyway to do their various projects. You pull them off into a booth for 20 minutes and that's how you get a single episode of a cartoon on Disney Plus that has like more A-list stars in it and it's 24 minutes than most live action things. Right. They all... Uh, other than Chris Evans, I think they're all there, right? Voicing their characters. Yeah, I can't um, remember. Did Bradley Whitford, was he in Captain the first Captain America movie? This brings me to the second point. I'm not going to look and find out. I okay. have hit <laughs> my limits. Like, and that's specifically, I'm glad you brought that up. I was like, hi, hey, was Bradley Whitford playing that part? You know what? Life's too short. Like, that's fine. I don't actually care if he was or not. But so I, kudos to them for being like, here's another way we can mine this universe for fun and potentially unearth things that could turn into real things. The second track conversation, the one you're not ready to have, Chris, and actually you are ready to have it, is... is what if Red Skull was right? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Did you get Red Skulled? Is that what happened when you watched this episode? <laughs> There's um, some incredible YouTube videos I'll send you later. <laughs> I just... The second thing was is just... I, this. This also may be my limit of like... Part of the fun of the Marvel Cinematic Universe is that it's real actors doing these things and, you know, the, the the filmmakers and artisans behind the scenes being like, well, you've you've read about cosmic cubes for years. Here's what they would look like. And, like, mm-hmm. that's still fun and exciting. This felt like a, you know, it's, it's sort of amusing and entertaining fan service and 
nothing about it struck me as particularly thrilling. I, it's fine. It's a fine okay. thing to spend 24 minutes on. And Haley Atwell's cool and okay. But but yeah. I don't find myself getting super high or low about it. It just exists. Me neither. I think it's like probably a case of like anything that Marvel does moves the stock market. So it's worth paying attention to. But then mm-hmm. you realize, you know, you're talking about like a, a, a 32 minute cartoon or whatever that that is largely like a reshoot of Captain America until the final few minutes, uh, obviously with the major characters being moved around, but a lot of the action set pieces, right? Like they are, I think, taken from the movie. I mean, there's plenty of shots that are shot for shot from the Captain America movie. The and, one, and the rest of the better. shots are taken from uh, Watchmen, which I yeah, thought was super weird. That was weird. <laughs> um, I will say this, like, you know, Disney, by the end of the most recent Star Wars trilogy of films, right? I think... Plenty of people were like, I waited X amount of years for this to happen. And when you finally gave it to me, you basically just told the same story over again. You know, and Mm -hmm. I think that for whether or not you did or didn't like The Last Jedi or whether or not you think that there's a lot to like about that trilogy on the whole, but had some problems in the end, however you're feeling about Star Wars these days, let's put that in a box. I do think that there was like a little bit of a like, are we ever going to move forward in this world? You know, and Marvel, to their credit, also a Disney property, have done a very good job being like chapter closed. Let's move on. Mm -hmm. While subtly letting all those people live on on Disney Plus and exploring, you know, yeah, sure. We're exploring more complex emotional situations or sociopolitical issues on those on those series, but like essentially it's still members of the Avengers hanging out. You know what I mean? Like we're still seeing these people, even if we're telling new stories. So this is a really slick way of basically starting a new quote unquote phase while also never leaving the other phases behind. And what if, you know, like you're saying, like there is like a kind of playfulness and mischievousness to it in its, at its center that it could have. But ultimately what I think it's going to be is let's mess around and just kind of remix some of the greatest hits, right? Yeah, I mean, the the one thing that no version of What If could really do, and this is a slippery slope to be on in comic books or in TV, is you can't suggest something that everyone at the end of it is like, that would have been better. Like, yes. you kind of, that's, that's risky. Right. Because you kind of, I think the most interesting thing about this series would be like, you know, where they actually went right at mistakes they made. You know what I mean? Like, what if we hadn't cast Tilda Swinton as the ancient one in Doctor Strange? Sure. <laughs> like, sure. obviously, that's not what this show is. I think that, to your point, every move that they do, and I remain in awe of it because there's always legitimate, if not excellent, artistic cover for the decisions. But every move they make is, how can we keep this going? Mm-hmm. How can, and, and not in the sense of, like, telling the Star Wars story again, but how can we keep mining something they don't leave story on the bone. And so when you have an idea like, okay, the adventures of Steve and Karen and Howard Stark in World War II, which got, you know, yada yada because it was a feature film and a different era. And also those actors didn't want to do 10 movies of the first 10, you know, first 30 minutes of the film. You could do a comic book version of the Howlin' Commandos. You could mm-hmm. make a whole series about Captain Carter and and Bucky and, and Steve as Hydra Smasher or whatever. Like, Sure, you can do that now. And the actors would love it because they get paid. They don't have to work that hard. And it doesn't matter if they get older or cut their hair or whatever. So, so what I, happens? Th- that's another line for them here. And it's impressive. Can you help me get, get my head around what happens at the end of this episode then? So am yes. I supposed to... So basically, spoiler alert, if you haven't watched this episode, you can stop listening now. The uh, Captain Carter, or you know, she goes through this portal and winds up, I guess, right before what the Avengers she, she so the, it, it's the Avengers movie right. so the implication and by the way for super nerds uh, it's notable that she's Captain Carter not Captain Britain who is sure. a character but is yeah. more closely connected with the X-Men um, and doesn't they're, have a shield they're saving that part for uh, for Steve Coogan I mean now you're just preaching to the choir here although I believe Captain Britain is now Betsy Braddock so it's, it's a woman although Steve I Coogan see. you know might be controversial casting, but I think could also be excellent. <laughs> um, the the implication, and this is always the fun thing in the what-if stories too, and I think there's actually a whole spin-off character unrelated to the what-if mythos where like, what if 
uh, Gwen Stacy lived, but Peter Parker died, and Gwen Stacy becomes kind of a Spider Woman character, and et cetera, et cetera. The the fun thing is like the stories tend to hit the same beats. Like you can change some pieces, but you can't change the, the overall shape of history. Like X, X, the characters might be different, but X will still lead to Y. And so the thing here was. No matter who gets the super, the super soldier serum, someone sacrifices him, his or herself for the good of everyone and then is gotcha. unfrozen, essentially, or reclaimed in the future. And in this case, uh, Peggy is returned by Nick Fury being like, what, what happened to all my friends? And he's like, the war is over. And so then there w- could be a, another story, and I'm sure due to the positive reception of this, they're working on it, where the Avengers are formed with this new reality where gotcha. she's the new leader of the new Avengers. Not the new, the only Avengers in that alternate universe. I mean, the, the, the crazy thing would be, it, again, it's overly complicated, but if all the what-if stories took place in the same alt universe, but that's not sure. what what-if is. Okay. All right, are you going to keep watching? I, I, I will go piecemeal. Like gotcha. if there's a, I, 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 I may be wrong about this, but I was, I was Googling it and it seems like they're, they're pretty being, discreet. They're being close yeah. to the vest about what stories they're telling and whose voices are going to be in them. So I know nothing. What's your greatest unanswered question about the Marvel Universe? Boy, that's a, that's good. These are the sort of questions that other podcasts talk what about was the, before what they was, record. Uh, what was the Votorama like on the Sokovia Accords? You know, what kind of amendments got attached? Percent. What kind of uh, pork barrel politics were involved? You know, like... Did, like what did West Virginia get out of the Sokovia? Did Sokovia course? get like an Olympic stadium in the in you know like once they rebuilt Sokovia? I guess. Yeah, I don't, like, <laughs> we have we ever covered that? Like, does Sokovia have a seat at the table? Yeah, what's anymore? Up Sokovia? Seriously, Euro twenty twenty four in Sokovia. Yeah, yeah, and did like did like did, did they become like a petro state kind of because they have all this like infusion <laughs> of of maybe uh, Chris? They became a Pietro state. So if they, but like, let's say Sokovia is swimming in it. Like, do you think Leo Messi goes play, play for Sokovia FC? Oh my God. I love this. I, so you have a very, this is beautiful. This is what separates us. You know, I started this podcast by just sort of feeling sad about the state of the world and how, how broken and underdeveloped humanity is. And Chris is like, the world bank will restore Sokovia <laughs> beyond its former glory in a matter That's of fair. like five short years. Like you really got, believe in the international project. Christine Legrand. I just think she's a, she's a great lady <laughs> and she's got such a vision for, for civilization. It's a beautiful thing. It's Love beautiful to borrow thing. at low interest rates. <laughs> um, let's get into my interview with uh, Andrew Hay and Jack O'Connell. Andy, it was great talking to you today. Chris, um, before we do, should we tease? Oh. I know you, you know I like to keep things secret, but- I don't know why. I th- like let's, let's say- we have Barry Jenkins on the show on Monday. Uh, Andy we have and I, like America's greatest living filmmaker, Barry Jenkins, on our podcast. Yeah, it was, you know, I think Andy and I had sort of, we've been like, we're going to talk about Underground Railroad. And then it, when this this sort of became a possibility, I think we decided to save our conversation for when we talked to Barry. I think we'll do like a kind of more larger, sort of like our critical discussion of the show before the interview on Monday's show. We'll say that like, you know, obviously a very challenging thing to watch. You know, it's not, an entertaining or fun thing to watch. I think most people would agree. I think even Barry Jenkins would agree, but it's an important thing to watch. And I think it is a pretty amazing achievement in the medium. And what was cool is talking to Barry about what the hell the medium is anymore. Yeah. And also just what he brings to it. I mean, he's just such a staggeringly beautiful filmmaker and watching this is just, it it deeply, yeah, as you said, a deeply challenging, but also deeply aesthetic and emotional experience at times. So we're both grateful that we watched it. We're mentioning it now not just because we're super stoked that Barry Jenkins was on our podcast, but also to say you guys got four days to finish Underground Railroad. All of it's streaming on Amazon. So yeah, we're going to get to my interview with Jack and Andrew in just a second. I will mention before we get into it that uh, we had a couple of audio issues with Jack's audio, so there might be a couple of hiccups in there, but otherwise a great conversation, two great characters, and an amazing show. So after a quick break, we'll get into my interview with the North Waters, Andrew Hay and Jack O'Connell. Thank you, Bransky's, and thank you, Kai McMullen for producing. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com watch. That's mintmobile.com watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan 
only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. I just am so excited to have Jack and Andrew with me because Northwater is, if not my favorite, one of my favorite things I've seen this this year. It is an extraordinary piece of work and a lot of it is down to these guys. Jack, I'm going to start with you because th- there's a lot written about the extreme circumstances of the shoot of the, of the production. What did Andrew have to say to convince you to get this cold? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> not a lot. Not a lot, really. Uh, I think it was mainly the main draw was the, the sort of opportunity to be out there and, and doing it. And instead of being in a studio and having to imagine and recreate and, and, and try and convince people that, you know, we were experiencing any level of hardship, it was, you know, it was offered to us by virtue of just being there. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's a real treat that, you know, we, you've got one less thing to think about within the performance. So, yeah, it, 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 not a lot of convincing. There was no elevator pitch. <laughs> no, not really, to be honest. No, no, no. I mean, I, I, a lot of time myself and Andrew spoke was in, in reference to the, the character. Like, I think that's what we mainly got in depth about was his philosophy on Sumner and my philosophy and, and the two kind of, you know, um, intellectual um, understanding of things. So I, I wanted to sort of explore that and... and explore that with Andrew and his his take on Sumner helped me to do that and it was uh yeah I was I always came away from those conversations with Andrew um feeling feeling very much more informed and much more educated and and eye-opening to things I hadn't previously considered so yeah listen I, I was sold straight away. Andrew what was that take on Sumner because I, I find him to be an incredibly complicated protagonist and a, a continually surprising one over the course of the series. Obviously, he goes through a bunch of figurative rebirths. That's in, in a lot of ways what the series is about. But it must be exciting to write a character or to, to adapt a character that goes through this metamorphosis over the course of, of five hours. Yeah, I think what I um, what I loved about it, and it was there in the original book, was how kind of complex Sumner's character is and how he's not like a traditional hero in any in any normal sense you know normally these characters are quite straightforward and they have this uh, kind of simple desire for redemption uh, and then they find that redemption and then that's the end of the story um, and I feel like that for Sumner he is so wounded by so many things that have happened to him in the past and his struggle to get on with life, that it keeps chasing him. And every time he sort of gets over one thing, he has to get over something different. And that's what I really liked about his character. It's a constant struggle. He thinks he's about to understand or work something out. And then there's another thing that he has to be to fight and struggle against. And that to me is just a really truthful, I suppose, depiction of a character. It's not as if we go through struggle and then find the answer. Uh, it's there's always one thing leading to another thing leading to another thing. One of the things that I loved about it was, I mean, when you describe your sort of uh, your take on this character and you talk about these obstacles and I, I think back through the episodes about everything that he goes through, there's elements of this that are very straightforward adventure. On the other hand, there are elements of the series that feel like a horror movie or feel like a medical procedural or a detective show and some that feel like... I, I just I, th- I think there's so much in this project that must be have been really quite fun to chew on for both of you. Jack, did you feel like you got to be in several different shows at once? I think Jack's microphone is muted. I can talk to that too if that helps. Yeah, please by all means. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what is so that's what I love about the story. Actually, to be honest with you, like you can go into it with certain 
expectations of what kind of what's how this story is going to unfold and you think oh it's going to be a procedural thriller or it's going to be a horror story or it's going to be some existential drama and it's all of those things and often all in the same episode and I find that a really fascinating way to tell a story because it sort of constantly throws the audience off balance you think it's going to be one thing and then it becomes something else which is essentially what it's like for someone within the story well one minute he thinks it's one thing and then it becomes something else yeah they think they're going on a whaling expedition it turns out they're on an insurance scam then it turns into a survival story and then it turns into basically a a western vengeance story where he's going to track this guy down across an incredible landscape you know it's got such a distinctive look but I was wondering, did you think about things in terms of reference points or influences? Did you, did you watch anything that actually, you know, on first viewing, nobody would know that you were actually, you know, screening certain films or certain shows because you wanted to get a certain kind of feel for it? Um, I try, I often try not to watch too many things when I'm kind of leading up to shooting something. I think it can, for me, it can almost be more distracting. So the uh, anti-Tarantino then, you don't show 700 movies before no. you shoot Inglourious Bastards. No, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It basically would make me too nervous. There'd be too much yeah. for me to have to compare myself to. So, I mean, I think I, what I, I knew that we were going to be shooting in the real environment. So really that kind of dictates a lot of how you decide to shoot it. And I think all I wanted to do was make it feel as kind of visceral and as grounded as I possibly could. And I think that kind of dictates a lot of how the show ends up feeling. And, you know, I did watch, you know, I watched other kind of boat uh, ship based dramas for kind of references, especially on how to, make the ship when you're inside feel like it's moving. It's such a tricky technical thing to make it feel like you're moving when essentially for those interior scenes, you're on a soundstage. Yeah, right. I mean, there's the there's the famous anecdote about Jaws where Spielberg originally wanted to nail everything down on a tripod and his director of photography was like, if you do that, people are going to be throwing up in the aisle. <laughs> it's true. You really have to find a way to adapt to kind of the movement of the ship and how both, you know, when you're shooting on the ship for real and then reflect that when you're shooting on a soundstage for some of the interior scenes. Jack, for those exteriors... Uh, I'm, I'm oh, back, go ahead, yeah, please. Just FYI, I'm, I'm back again. So, yeah, yeah, I've got my technology <laughs> set now. So, Jack, for the, for the exteriors especially, did you find that the point like to get from A to B as a performer, as an actor, was that much of a cleaner line because there was, there was very little pretending going on, especially when you're in that setting? Yeah, it's a treat. It's, it's a treat. I think you just get to kind of feel organically and 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 nothing really is wrong then um you're you're not having to kind of dig for anything and you're just sort of dealing with the hardships of 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 what is a very inhospitable environment so it's a a total treat and um yeah 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 so so it just kind of free as as i said before you're, you're free and 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 you're focusing on the other stuff then. And, you know, I mean, compare that to being on a soundstage somewhere, wearing all these layers as you would do uh, out in that climate, but actually being boiling hot. I mean, that's, to pull that off as an actor, that's that's probably more impressive. Right. <laughs> it's more impressive to, in some ways, act against a, a green screen in some ways. You know, for both of you guys, and Andrew, we can start with you. I, You know, the, one of the things that's a hallmark of this series is the feeling that, you're getting exactly what you want. Now, I, I know you might smirk at that because I'm sure you would say, I, there are plenty of times where I didn't get what I wanted. There were plenty of things that I wish I could go back and change. But, you know, I, can you talk to me a little bit about the tension that might have been there of having something in your head that you would love to execute, but then shooting in such an extreme environment that sometimes you're going to have to take whatever it gives you? Yeah, it's true. Like, you know, I, I always, I'm quite, a, I pre-plan as much as I can in terms of getting an idea of how I want to shoot something, but I don't storyboard and I don't shot list down to the kind of minutiae of what I need to get. And I think I have to work like that. And in this kind of environment, there is really no choice. So (laughs) you might think there is one way that you want to shoot, say the seal hunt, but then in the reality of it, we couldn't find enough ice to work on for a while. We had to sit around looking for stable enough ice to, to, um, put the ship alongside and then we had a couple of hours to shoot it so is, you have is that to another really... global warm a gift of global warming that you couldn't find any ice <laughs> pretty much yeah there was oh, a lot less ice than we thought there should be there, there usually is at that time of year 
Um, and so you, you you have less time than you would like. And, you know, we were losing, it was getting darker by about half an hour each day. It was getting darker and darker. So the days were getting shorter and shorter and shorter. But, you know, the truth is I love that kind of, that excitement and that tension that is created because it means you have to think on your feet. You have to think, okay, this is actually the shot that we can that we need to uh, shoot now to make this to make the sequence work. And I kind of love that. It, it creates an, an excitement and a tension, and you know everybody feels it. And you have to work as hard as you can, as quick as you can. And sometimes having too much time and too much time to kind of think about things is actually the worst thing for you. You know, Jack, you're in almost every scene in, in this series, but the thing that I love so much about your performance is what an extraordinary scene partner you are. Like some of my favorite moments of the show are when you're reacting to someone else's behavior, especially in your in some of the moments you have with Colin. And I was just wondering if you could talk about the experience of working with him, but also what it was like when he would surprise you on set. Because I, I feel like there are a couple of moments, especially when you are uh, interrogating him about the, the cabin boy and, and, and the, there's a sort of big uh, turn there, that you just seem sincerely surprised by what is happening. And it is like the most, it's the most natural reaction. It really grabs you by your collar. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I think Colin, like, I mean, he's, he's an actor of, what I describe as a, a certain caliber. So, you know, you, you know that you're going to get something extraordinarily special from him uh, every time you go at it. So that, again, just, just makes your life easier because um, you have something sort of phenomenal to be uh, acting with. And so there's not a lot of uh, effort that goes into, um, you, you know, finding these organic moments with him. And I'll say that while, while he was Drax, I, I was massively intimidated by him in scenes and whatever else. And and that that is then coupled with being enamoured by him when he wasn't Drax, because Colin and, and Drax, to state the painfully obvious, are two very different people. <laughs> I would hope so. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, just to make that clear, yeah, to everyone. <laughs> he's, um, uh, Colin's like a, a very soulful, gentle man and an amazing company and, uh, you know, a great, a great mentor throughout that, that period of time. So yeah, you you just uh, for, for me in answer to that, you you just make the most of it and you just turn up and um, try and be as, as present as, as he's he's obviously able to be, and that's that's um, it just kind of contributed to an altogether unforgettable experience for me. I will say that um, like what Jack is so uh, brilliant at is he really does commit to the moment of the performance. So like. You know, he's so committed to finding like as much truth as he can within the scene. And he'll go to extremes sometimes to get there, which is so incredible to watch. So and 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 I think that's why, as you say, he's so good in the scenes when he is just listening to someone or when he's reacting to someone, because he is there in that moment. And uh, you know, a lot of actors aren't quite like that. They can be a lot more kind of selfish. Uh, with their performance, and Jack just isn't. He's there as Sumner every step of the way. And, you know, I think that's why he's so brilliant in the show. How much of, of, of Drax is on the page in the novel versus what Colin sort of specifically brought to it versus what you had in your head, Andrew? I was curious about the assembly of that character and, like, the different sort of authors of it. Mm. Yeah, because I think in the book, Drax is almost a pure monster. And I think I wanted Drax to also have, this may sound strange, but an attractive quality, at least to Sumner, so that Sumner is drawn into Drax's world and drawn into trying to understand him uh, rather than just be immediately repelled by him. And I think in the book, you are repelled by Drax almost straight away. And for me, it was more interesting that that you were drawn uh, closer into Drax's uh, world and Colin is very good at making him attractive as well as making him repellent and so I think Colin finds that balance within the character Jack there aren't very many roles where I, I, I imagine you get to do so much I mean short of of having a love interest this character 
really gets to be a, he gets to be a doctor he gets to be an avenging angel he he's a survivalist he's he's the leader but he's also an addict and he's got these PTSD you know memories of what happened to him in India I mean it is the the full buffet I imagine of of like the human experience that must have been part of of what made this such a meaty role to take on I mean yeah I think that's a, a fair description of of most people um but in reality, most most people aren't either one thing or another, and 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 some that has a wealth of experience in in different fields uh, via the vehicle of his medical profession. So, in in order to prepare for the role, then uh, it was was important for me to read various literature based on what he'd experienced. So, you know, for example, there's a great book. Um, called the siege of Krishnapur, which kind of takes you to basically the Raj and the war that Sumner was uh, involved in. So, and then there, there were other books. There were like you know Victorian studies on on surgery of that period, which were greatly helpful. So a lot of this that stuff kind of happened in prep, just to kind of make me at least feel like I had license to be inventive and feel like I had, had earned some level of understanding. Andrew, I wanted to ask, you know, as, as you're assembling this, uh, as this piece, and I, I know you used to work on, on Ridley Scott films as, as, as an editor, and, and it, it, that, that sort of your background comes in, in the sort of a, a post-production. When you're making something that's going to be five hours as opposed to a feature, how does your brain change in terms of pacing in terms of cutting in terms of assembling something that's going to have ins and outs as an episode and you know the arcs of each 60 minutes versus the arc of a two hour and change film or the art or, or thinking in terms of this is actually a five hour statement yeah it's definitely a, a challenge sometimes i mean i always i wanted to think of it as as you say a five hour state it's a five hour movie but obviously a five hour movie is a very long movie yeah. it is about trying to find the highs and lows within each hour of the episode because you have to realize sometimes i like to forget that people are actually watching it as a tv show but you have to remember that and people do need to have something to bring them through the hour that leaves them wanting more that can then lead to the next episode so i'm certainly aware of that and you know we we played a lot with certain endings and beginnings and things changed along the way and endings that you thought were going to be the endings turned out not to be the endings and, and a few scenes shifted within the episodes. But, you know, it's just about trying to find its own rhythm. And, you know, I think my instincts are always more filmic than they are television. So I think even mm -hmm. in terms of like how the episodes unfold and how they're edited and how they're shot to me, they still feel more like they have a, have a, a film language and a film editing rhythm than more traditional TV. And that was important to me because I still wanted it to feel like, you know, in 10 years time, if you come across this show, it's like, Oh, it is a five hour piece, you know, in its yeah. entirety. And, and, and that's important to me. You can forget that sometimes when it's just, it's not just the moment that it comes out. It has a, like a longevity and it has a future. And so we always think about those things. And sometimes, you know, you, you struggle to find uh, the right rhythms within an episode to end in the right way. But, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an ongoing process. It was made slightly harder with how we had to edit this, which was remotely during COVID, yeah. you know, not all being necessarily in the same room as the editors. And that has its own kind of challenges. So did you finish shooting before? sort of the lockdowns began and then and then go into post after? Well, we sort of, we, we finished the bulk of the shooting before COVID, but then there was a week that we were supposed to shoot in Canada, in the Arctic up in Canada that we couldn't shoot because of COVID. So we had okay. to change and shoot some, some of the stuff in studio when we didn't want to, which was, you know, deeply depressing at the time. And, you know, I will, you know, it's, it's always a shame, but, you know, you have to do these things. Obviously, we didn't want to put anyone at risk. Uh, during yeah. the pandemic so uh it was challenging and then some of the edit was done uh before um lockdown and then some of it was done afterwards some of the mixing had to be done uh and some of the grading was all done remotely so it was it was definitely a different experience and i love being in the room with people when you're working on these things so it makes it slightly more complicated but you know it does work you can do it remotely however frustrating sure it can feel jack did you 
you know, when you when you're in a piece like this, or when you're doing something that you were also extraordinary in, which was Godless, which I, I also loved, do you have to pace your performance differently? Is there is there like a different way to tune your instrument when you're going to be in most of the scenes of a five hour series versus you know three quarters of the scenes in a in a feature or whatever like whatever the case may be but you know is there a different way that you prepare yourself like almost physically and emotionally outside of like how you how you get ready to do uh the acting i mean largely i think that is dictated by the writing and and the requirements then of of the the character you're portraying um, and and how he's sort of relating to the story unfolding so and there's, there, there has to be some level of, of texture and, and, and just for uh, the purposes of avoiding monotony, really. Um, and just to, to try and make, sort of feel like I'm making a character as believable and uh, realistic, essentially, uh, as possible. So there's, like, there's an element of that being considered throughout. And then obviously Andrew with... The, the excellent steerage that I felt that was was on offer to me um, through portraying Sumner would be a constant in in that old, that part of that whole process. So yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if there's there's any kind of level of pacing, but again, you know, you, you, there are times where it's okay to just do nothing, mm-hmm. and you know, and that's that's beautiful too. In fact, you know, some, arguably as interesting, if not more, to what you you know you don't react to, and what, what, what you know where where, you, where the stillness happens. Um, so, yeah, on on the overall, it is it's diff- definitely a different craft to filmmaking. Um, but you know, I think I'd second what Andrew said. Like, I, you know, I witnessed a lot of his instincts being very filmic, and I, I think that that is then. Uh, translated on screen because we've, uh, I think we both agree that I, I certainly feel like it's a, a five hour long one piece mm-hmm. um, as opposed to five in, installments six installments five or six it, like it's basically like three films shot on a TV schedule <laughs> which, <Sure>. is, <laughs> which is always the problem so you're trying to make yeah. something filmic when you're like oh my god we've got to do this amount of pages each day so it's producers like, it's, love it Producers love it, I know. I, I feel like more and more TV, they're like, so we want you to make it look like a film, but we're going to give you a TV schedule and you have to shoot it all in this amount of time. Um, I wanted to know whether or not there were any um, cliches or tropes that you wanted to avoid while making this because, uh, and I'm going to get into slept somewhat you know, this is going to go up the the day of the finale going up. So hopefully, folks will get to catch up. But if you if you're listening to this and you haven't seen it yet, you can you can you can stop and I'll I'll end the interview soon. But you know, when they're when the group is sort of stuck on this this remote island and they're they're doing some trading with Eskimos is to to get a very bare minimum amount of supplies. The thing that struck me about that whole sequence was. There are very few moments where everybody collapses to their knees and says, God, why have you forsaken us? And there's not a lot of uh, hysterics going on. These are people who are obviously trained to expect the worst. Um, And I thought that that trickled down all the way to the ways in which the performers seem to be interacting with each other on the island. It made for much more compelling... it just made it much more compelling to watch because you didn't have to get through the inevitable like, well, are they going to turn on each other? And now that there's going to be this and it's just like, no, it's obvious Drax is going to go break bad as soon as he gets these handcuffs off. But the thing that's really incredible is you can see Sumner sort of rise as a leader as he sort of shakes off the laudanum and he becomes sort of the sort of centerpiece of this group uh, trying to keep them together. And Andrew, I was curious whether or not when writing that, when shooting it, did you really like, we have to avoid certain cliches that come along with men in distress stories? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think I'm, I'm always trying to find the kind of like a side angle into this story, the one that's slightly different from the story as it's normally told. And I think that really comes down to trying not to, there's so many cliches about men being together like especially in this kind of environment, as you say, like men turning on each other, men becoming violent, like testosterone-fueled rage. And I tried to find something different than that. And I think, you know, there's almost like 
there's both the kind of resilience that comes out within these people and an acceptance and a sort of semi-compassion for each other within the story, sure. which I which I like. And I didn't want it to feel, I didn't want the show at all to feel too testosterone-y, if that makes sense, even though it's a story about men. So I wanted to find the kind of different nuance in male relationships and male friendships and how they need each other and how they can turn on each other but how they can also support each other. And I think that kind of trickles down into how the performances are. There's almost like a, it's kind of gentler than you might imagine this kind of story being. And I think that is just my instincts and the way that I want to look at masculinity, I suppose, rather than it being all about kind of hero and villain, it being something a bit thornier and more interesting. Um, and I think that leads to the story. And then going into kind of the final episode when, uh, Sumner gets back to Hull, where you sort of expect this huge redemptive ending. Yeah. I didn't want that to happen either. I wanted it just to be a bit more nuanced. And Jack, on that island, you know, one thing That's I... fascinating, by the way. I don't know, this man's a genius. <laughs> <laughs> why, why do you find it fascinating? What, tell me about it. I'm just thinking to, you know, to articulate, and it, as it relates to cliche, just to articulate it in, in, in a way that is sort of was paramount to us all uh, out there was like the, coming in at this is a sort of side angle and you know and sort of playing off those cliches but it just I think that's genius no and you know that, that that by that same token Jack the one the thing I love the most about that that whole sequence of of scenes on the island is that when your character Sumner kind of gets out from under his laudanum addiction, he becomes this leader, but the way he leads is, is, is very, it's got a light touch because it's almost you're leading as a surgeon. You're saying, look, I'm not going to make you walk around, but I'm going to tell you what happens if you don't, you know, and I'm not going to stop you from trying to screw over these Eskimos in your trade. But if you do, like we're up shit's Creek without a paddle, if, if you, if this goes wrong. And I loved how you like your performance almost, after you've kind of like gotten out from the the uh, the shakes from 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 having the addiction, like your character kind of like almost stands up a little bit straighter, and he has kind of like a different demeanor and gait. It's it's an incredible like switch there. Can you tell me a little bit about how did you did you purposely like sort of change the way this character was once he stopped drinking the laudanum? I think yeah, for sure. For sure, it was like um, it was apparent that this guy is riddled um, by the fact that opium has him in this evil uh, grasp. So, and and it's for for me, it was like a, a coming to realise the sort of potential of this individual once he'd involuntarily been freed of 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 his addiction and, and that's very simply put and i don't i don't think it was like one you know it, it didn't wake up one day and 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 that was that i don't want to do a disservice to the reality of what that is but it it, it, it was yeah it was it was important and i think there's like a common trait with um, maybe it's people of that a particular era or you and you, cer you certainly experience it today within certain individuals albeit perhaps a little rarer a quality that is like um you know, wisdom the wisdom of it yeah of 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 you know being able to ha have a level of compassion but an awareness that that can't be the ultimate driving force you know what what has to happen in this extreme circumstance for purposes of surviving is um it it, it has to be uh, pragmatic. Yeah, it's almost yes. it's rational. It's rational. Yeah. yeah, pragmatic. You know, streamlined. You, you can't afford hysteria in, in in that type of circumstance. And to see someone's reckoning with that was very exciting when I, when I when I read that. And just to sort of use his education, use his head, use his head in order to 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 survive. And where 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 everywhere else it was, uh, there might be panic or. Um, you know, the, the a more natural reaction to impending death and horrific death. Uh, Sumner's attitude to that is is more 
more pragmatic and cerebral, which fascinated me initially. And that, that became a port, an important part of the uniform of, of him and his story. What's, uh, what's really interesting, what you say there, Jack, is like, and this is an example of how he's not a traditional hero. Like in a traditional story, he would have chosen to give up the drugs. Yeah. He would have been, I'm going to put these drugs behind me and now I'm going to be a better man. Basically, he's desperate for those drugs and it's because the ship sinks <laughs> that he can't yeah. get the drugs. And I, it's all those little details that make him not a hero, but in doing so, he becomes the hero of the story, I guess, because he is more of a realistic hero. You know, we can't, we don't all, always find the strength to battle our demons. Sometimes it's no, taken I mean, out of our hands. I love the moment where he asks the priest for laudanum. I yeah. mean, it was like, because like this guy has just been inside of a bear, you know, he's, he probably is just like, I, this is, as soon as he hears about medicine, he's like, you got any laudanum? I mean, like yeah. th- this isn't, this isn't a, a c- closed chapter for him, but in the circumstances, he becomes a, a different person. I, I just, I adored this series so much. You know, I, 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 you, I don't want to go too far into the details of the last scene, but one of the things I thought was amazing was you end this series and it feels very complete, but then you're also like, what happens to this guy next? I mean, you're, I'm sure that, that, that you, you must have asked yourselves this question, but you know, here's this guy and he's in, I guess, at this point, what, 1860s uh, Berlin. And, and, and what a fascinating what if or what next for him, right? I mean, Jack, do you ever wonder what happens to Sumner next? I mean, at the time, definitely. And, um, you know, yeah, I think it's, uh, he's, 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 where, he's right where he, he ought to be. And that's sort of what was interesting about that for me was it was a kind of a slight actualization. Mm-hmm. Um, and so finally. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting question, but I, I haven't got anything profound in my response. No, I mean, I suppose an, an actor usually has to think about a character's past and not worry too much about yeah. their future, right? I mean, for me, what was interesting about it was that I, I wanted to, put across the sense that, you know, he's done things within the course of this story that he is not going to be able to forget or that he's proud of doing. Like even towards the end of the story, without giving too much away, he does something that he probably didn't need to necessarily do. In the traditional story, it's like, yes, you've won, but what's the ramifications of winning? Like what is the ramifications of what he's done? Like he will be forever haunted by what happened within this story. Just like as he came onto the ship, he was haunted by what happened in India or what happened in his childhood. And it's almost like he's managed to get over those things, but now we have new things to haunt us as we go forward. And so there will always be those additional struggles that we have to try and overcome in some regard. Yeah, while you're dragging yourself around, dragging your past around through all these experiences. Exactly. Well, just wanted to say thank you to both of you for for making this the show. It was really, it was really quite something to watch. I hope everybody gets a chance to check it out. Jack, Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Just while I've got him, just while we're on the same line, please hire me, Andrew. Please, man, please. Whatever <laughs> you doing me next, just, just. Please hire me. I'll do anything. I I've promise. never begged anybody okay. in my life. <laughs> you heard it here first. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, guys. Cheers. <laughs>